This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 18th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How technology can affect us as individuals has broad implications for public policy, and our beliefs about the future of technological progress is expressed in and shaped by our culture. Kimberly Hurd-Hale is author of The Politics of Perfection, Technology and Creation in Literature and Film. We discussed what art has to tell us about where technology might lead society. I wrote this book because I think that popular culture is very important to academics, yet it often is, uh, I would say, you know, unfairly maligned that uh, not enough attention is paid to it, that there tends to be uh, a focus on, you know, elite culture, on, uh, you know, high culture. And in a democracy, I think that's kind of dangerous, that a democracy is driven by public perceptions and public moods and public beliefs. And popular culture reflects that, going back to ancient Athens. And you know, you can see that you know, Socrates and Plato, they went to the theater. They attempted to understand what the people liked, why they liked it, what the mood of the public was as a way of informing uh, political institutions and political behavior, a way of understanding the life of the city. And I think that that's very important in any democracy to understand what the public is talking about, why they're talking about it. you know, why we're suddenly seeing a uh, you know, kind of surge in dystopian tales uh, in popular culture. What does that mean? I mean, there are easy answers, of course, that the popularity of one franchise means that 10 franchises will come after it. But I think it is still worth examining, worth examining what these uh, artifacts of popular culture are actually saying in terms of serious uh, political and philosophical discourse. So, the first uh, thing we're going to talk about is Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Now, uh, were there? What stories was that based on? What story was it based yeah, on? Yeah, well, I mean, it, oh. it, some things came before, but where are the like the strongest parallels that we find with Metropolis with things that existed before? Uh, that's actually a very difficult question because uh, Metropolis is generally considered the first science fiction film. So you can see uh, kind of philosophical echoes of it going back to Plato's Republic, the idea of the tripartite city and what that means uh, in terms of balancing efficiency with uh, liberty, with allowing people to uh, improve themselves versus you know, having the most productive uh, you know, structures in your society. So that's the parallel I draw in the book between uh, Plato's Republic and uh, Lang's Metropolis, how both of them contend with a society divided by class and what the implications are for uh, liberty, for individual liberty. So the, yeah. in, in Metropolis, you have this, this sort of overclass mm-hmm. of uh, wealthy elites mm-hmm. who are uh, titans of industry slash government mm-hmm. in a way. Yes. It's, it's very, very, very merged yes. uh, sense yes. of government and industry. And the young people, the children of the wealthy, mm-hmm. they just cavort around yes. and play and uh, make out mm-hmm. and, and play sports yes. and, and that sort of thing and are engaged in these sort of what are, I, I guess, viewed as uh, young people pursuits. Yes, yes. And Leisure there's, pursuits. And there's yes. this huge underclass that actually is running mm-hmm. the, literally running the machinery mm-hmm. of uh, industry and the state mm-hmm. at the same time. Yes. And they revolt. Yes. But it's not, 
it's not, it's not a happy story. No, it is and not. In any sort of standard Hollywood picture, <laughs> that revolt might very well be the end of the story. Yes, that's might the end victory. Of the movie. Yeah, that, that's yes, it. Yeah, yeah. So Metropolis is also fascinating, I think, in terms of Platonic philosophy because you know Plato, of course, identified parental love for their children as kind of the key flaw in any sort of massive uh, social engineering project, that people will not be able to accurately evaluate their children's talent or their children's intelligence or their children's ability. And this will be lead to the collapsing of any sort of engineered society. And you can already see this in Metropolis as well, that we don't know how long the city has functioned the way it is presented in the film, but you can see that will the children of the wealthy class who just spend their lives cavorting in this garden in this garden be prepared to take on the role of government be prepared to run the city once they reach an arbitrary age i mean it seems unlikely uh, the children of the workers you can also see you know in the revolt the workers forget about their children the children are almost killed in the flood they would have been killed in the flood w- without the intervention of maria and so you can see already that um, the disconnect between the generations is going to be problematic for the city of Metropolis, even without the revolt, that there's already um, an unwillingness to uh, you know, treat the children the way they need to be treated in order to prepare them for, uh, for ruling. And there, there's a moment there where they bring a group of children into the room where all these uh, young people are mm-hmm. just playing around and being, I don't, I don't know if it's lazy is the right word, but, yes. <laughs> but just partying, mm-hmm. basically. Yes. yes. And they're just like, they're sort of uh, taken aback mm-hmm. by this chunk of humanity that yes. they've forgotten and that, yes. they, that yes. they feel guilty about. And then that carries some of the plot line mm-hmm. through the rest of the film. Yeah. It even seems as though the children of the wealthy class had never seen anyone from the underclass, that you know that the uh, rulers of the city are familiar with the city of the workers, as it's called. They've been down there. They know what it's like. But the children of the wealthy class give no indication that they even knew the city of the workers was there. They had no idea what really was happening to facilitate their leisure, their uh, party in the garden. (laughs) They don't don't know. And so they are... um, you know, not evil so much as ignorant uh, of what is going on below them. But the solution yeah. that is decided mm-hmm. upon is revolt. Yes, is revolt. And again, it's not a happy revolt. Led yeah. by this tech, this woman who was like a machine who then turns into like this goddess. Well, the revolt is initiated by the robot who has been uh, designed to take on Maria's likeness. So Maria, the real woman, was a kind of political revolutionary in the working class, but she preaches uh, harmony and unity. And then the ruling class instead forms a robot in her likeness to uh, really stir up the workers and cause them to revolt as a means of um, cracking down, as a means of I was really giving it an excuse, uh, giving them an excuse to uh, regulate the workers even more harshly. And so you have this dual figure of the robot Maria and the human Maria and the different sides of revolution and you know, which one will be more successful. How was that film viewed uh, at the time and in subsequent decades? 
it really was unfairly associated with the Third Reich uh, in the decades after it was released. That uh, I think the fact that the film did not view the workers' revolt as an unmitigated good, as the end of a you know happy story of overthrowing tyranny, was uh, really objectionable to many film critics. So it was the wrong yeah. revolution. The wrong revolution. Yes, <laughs> because again, the city is not okay at the new metropolis. The the workers are not going to be able to you know, form some sort of happy communist utopia or even be able to understand democracy. There's no indication that there's been any sort of civic virtue or civic education in this city. And so it's really just in a place of chaos. And this was really objectionable to a lot of critics who you know, viewed it as uh, needlessly subtle <laughs> would be a way to put it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, And again, the central love story of Metropolis was dismissed as sentiment by many critics, which again, I think unfairly because the love story is critical to the success of the new society. The only way that Metropolis survives the revolution is if they all remember that they love one another, that they have you know, these ties of family and friendship, and they should not seek to oppress one another. It's a common yeah. humanity. Yes, a common humanity. An- another piece that you look at uh, in your book is Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, Never Let Me Go, yes. which, which I will, because there are spoilers coming, uh, I would recommend anybody to read that book and uh, stop right now yes. and go read it. And yes. Don't read anything they about it. They should have it. read it already. Just go read it. Just don't, <laughs> yeah. but don't listen to anything else about it until you've gotten about halfway through. Yes. So uh, that book uh, details children at Hailsham, mm-hmm. uh, which is a boarding school. Yes, a boarding school. Yes. yes, but it's it, not yeah. really a boarding school. Yes, but it plays on this kind of. American, in particular, American kind of fantasy of the English boarding school, where you see this, you know, repeated constantly in films and books that we have this ideal, um, idealized version of the British boarding school, where you go and you play with your friends and you learn uh, the great books and everything is wonderful. But then, of course, it's gradually revealed that the wonderful education they are receiving at Hailsham is kind of just cover for the very dark destiny that awaits the clones. Yeah, it's for, yeah. n- it's for not. It's for not, and We yes. haven't mentioned it yet, but all these children are clones. They're all clones, and yes. They are, they are, in fact, organ factories. Yes. And it's so weird because uh, the parallels between Ishiguro's uh, Never Let Me Go and Remains of the Day are mm-hmm. so strong yes. in terms of like the internal monologue yes. of characters who are trying to make right mm-hmm either the choices they've made or the life that has just been thrust upon them. Yes, yes. It's told from the point of view of one of the clone children, and it's not a story of revolution. It's a story of her growing up, having friends, falling in love, reconciling herself to the fact that she will die before she reaches middle age, that she will donate her organs one at a time in a very cruel manner, that uh, she will spend her last years caring for her fellow clones as they make these organ donations and have to watch her friends be slaughtered by this uh, bureaucratic system that uh, has been solely responsible for her creation and her education and controlled every aspect of her life to the point where she does not resist. None of the clones resist. They accept their fate. They show no indication that they would be able or willing to escape their destiny. They think that that is 
what they were bred to do. And really, there's very little indication that they find it morally objectable. It's uh, very British. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So in that, in that story, uh, how much of a sense do we get of why this was done, of the, the sort of the backstory mm-hmm. of this is, this is how we got to this, you say it's cover for mm-hmm. this horrific process mm-hmm. where people are, uh, have their organs harvested one by one. They go through these long recoveries only mm-hmm. to then have another organ harvested. And then they, they'll die, of mm-hmm. course, when they lose a sufficient number of uh, vital organs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so the story is set in uh, the late 1990s in Britain. And the premise is that following uh, World War II, rather than the kind of breakthroughs in nuclear power that we experienced, there were instead breakthroughs in medicine. So we figured out a way to clone human beings and use their organs to uh, essentially cure cancer, cure heart disease, um, all of the kind of you know great mass killers of our society. We can use the clone organs to cure them. And this means that ordinary human beings no longer have to fear cancer. They no longer have to fear heart disease or liver disease. They no longer have to worry that their family members will die prematurely from these things. And so the society is willing to accept this program of breeding and raising and slaughtering clones in exchange for longer life, longer, healthier life. And Never Let Me Go examines it from the point of view of a society that wants these organs desperately, but also seemingly recognizes that it is a seriously inhumane, unethical thing that they are doing. And so then you get Hailsham. You get the idea that if we educate these clones in a you know classical sense, we give them classical educations, they read the great novels, they learn about philosophy, they spend most of their time doing art, uh, that then somehow it's more humane <laughs> what we are doing to them. Uh, and you see this again in their long recovery periods. That, it's it's a, yeah. like a Potemkin respect for, yes. their indi- for their individuality yes. and their natural human rights. Yes, they, they're given names. Uh, it's recognized that they have human drives, that they uh, benefit somehow from these educations. And so you have to ask, you know, if it's worthwhile to allow them to read Jane Austen, then how are they, then how is it acceptable to harvest their organs as though they were not sentient beings? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's... How was that book received? Because I know Remains of the Day was huge. Was a huge success and very critically well-received, but how was uh, uh, Never Let Me Go, how has it been perceived? Uh, very positively, that uh, it is considered, um, I think, a modern classic, that it's... Um, I think, you know, to me, of course, it's very important. And I, I've never met a person who has not viewed it with some sort of awe. So I think, yeah, very well received by both critics and the public. Uh, not as widely read as I would, of course, hope. But, but, there, yeah. but there are so many stories mm-hmm. that, are, that are very similar, mm-hmm. it, both in the technical details of the plot. So there was uh, coma in the yeah. 70s, uh, which was based on a Michael Crichton book. Is that right? I think so, yes. Um, and then, like, The Island, which mm-hmm. was a sci-fi oh, movie yes. that was yeah. not great, but it uh, <laughs> sort good. of detailed some, yeah. of the, some of the similar elements. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the, the idea that there is what we're doing is okay as a, a government, mm-hmm. 
as long as we're providing civilization mm-hmm. to these people at mm-hmm. some point. So I'm thinking of Heart of Darkness. Yes. Yeah. Where, well, as long as we're doing the, the war is fine. The, mm-hmm. the slaughter is fine. The mm-hmm. killing all these all these people is is fine. But because we're civilizing mm-hmm. them in the process. Yes, um, and it's I think very closely related to Hannah Arendt's idea of the banality of evil about how these atrocities just get normalized into society, so that it becomes very difficult for us to even see our behavior clearly. That we cannot really see the things that we are doing. Uh, without, I think, these reflections of popular culture, that we can't really you know, begin to separate ourselves from our own uh, behavior, from our own uh, you know, beliefs, until someone gives us an outsider perspective through you know, the view of a clone, for example, uh, so that we can really see. I mean, to me, I think Never Let Me Go uh, it, you know, it is, of course, science fiction, but I think it's eminently realistic, <laughs> that it, uh, I can easily see a bureaucracy developing in this direction. Yeah, and, and it, it, it has a lot of the best elements of science fiction in that it talks about the story that arises mm-hmm. in a world where these things are common, yes. and not so much, let's talk about the technical details of yes. the science, yes. right? Yes. Um, we, you mentioned the banality of evil, and of course, we're ta- if we're talking about fiction here, the character that comes to mind uh, for me is a Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter series yes. as yes. the techno the technocrat who allows evil to flourish in in the the Ministry of mm-hmm. Magic in the Harry Potter series because she's more she's more engaged in the process of asserting and establishing mm-hmm. control mm-hmm. than she is about. Uh, doing what is right. Yes, I think uh, yeah, Dolores Umbridge is a great example of this. That it's all related, I think, to the impulse towards perfection. The idea that uh, efficiency and perfection and control are goals worth pursuing in themselves. This reaction against the messiness or an inefficiency of humanity. And I think that you can see this in a lot of science fiction, but yes, Dolores Umbridge is a great example of the same impulse in humanity to um, eliminate flaws without seeing that those flaws are, in fact, uh, our strengths. They're the things that make our life worth living. Uh, the individuality, the relationships you form uh, you know, outside of the kind of strict structure of your life, of society, these are the things that make life wonderful, that make life you know, beautiful. And uh, yeah, so I think that that is, uh, fits in perfectly with what the book is really Getting at and, and her great line or her great exchange in the book is like with Harry Potter, mm-hmm. where she's taken over the post of the defense against the dark arts mm-hmm. uh, uh, class, and she's teaching them out of books. Mm-hmm. And Harry asks her, "So, what good is any of this going mm-hmm. to be in the real world?" And she says, "This isn't the real world. Yes. This is school." Yes, and I think it's very interesting that you also see that impulse to protect. The children, as we said, you know, the same uh, impulses you see in Metropolis. This, uh, and of course, she's doing it for nefarious reasons. But you see echoes of this uh, in our own society. You see echoes it of it throughout uh, popular culture. This idea that children need to be protected, at, while they are, of course, the victims of um, all of these horrible, uh, you know, societal movements that the adults inflict upon them. The uh, the third piece that you uh, talk about is you talk about other items mm-hmm. as well, but the ones I, I wanted to talk about is the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Yes, and you you have a, a 
basic plot here. Mm -hmm. uh, a man who has undergone a very uh, devastating breakup, and he wants to erase it from yes. his right. mind. What are what credit? What are the critical elements that uh, jump out about that? So it's related to an idea from Aeschylus, actually. You know the. Um, tragedian of ancient Athens, who has probably his most famous line is, uh, wisdom comes from suffering. He says, wisdom comes alone from suffering. The idea that human beings cannot be wise unless we suffer, that it's the pain that teaches us, um, you know, initially teaches us how to survive. You don't touch the stove because someone touches the stove, it's hot, you learn not to touch the stove. There is no coming to consciousness yes. except through pain. <laughs> through pain, yes. And so initially you learn to survive this way. And then as you grow into an adult, hopefully you learn how to be a good person this way. You learn not to hurt others because when people hurt you, you feel bad. You learn to um, not make mis the same mistakes over and over again because it leads to suffering. And so Aeschylus believed that this type of suffering is what allows us to come closer to truth, to uh, become philosophers, to uh, transcend the basic animal existence that human beings you know, start at to become human in some very important ways. And Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind examines that, the impulse in humanity, especially, I think, in modern humanity, to use technology to eliminate suffering, which is, of course, sometimes very good. I mean, we can use medicine to eliminate disease. That's wonderful. Uh, but we have to be careful not to conflate, let's say, needless suffering with useful suffering. Uh, and the breakup that uh, Joel and Clementine go through in the film is useful suffering. It teaches them uh, about the mistakes that they made in their relationship. It teaches them things about themselves that they may not have known. And so, and Joel realizes this, you know, of course, partially partway through the film, that uh, he needs this relationship with Clementine, because he is a different person without it, a completely different person without this relationship. And he's, in some ways, a better person with it, with the suffering. He will learn from it and grow. And, uh, and part of the thing yeah. that mm -hmm. part of the process that he goes through is to eliminate any memories that remind yes. him of this girl, yes. which includes uh, very early memories of yes. his life. Yes, that her name is Clementine. And uh, one of his foundational memories is being bathed as an infant by his mother while she sings uh, My Darling Clementine. And so that memory is erased as something that is tied to his relationship with Clementine. And so the viewer is left wondering you know, how many of a his foundational memories can be taken from him before he becomes a sociopath, before he becomes something completely different. You, know, you can't simply remove you know, early bonding experiences with one's mother and expect to remain unchanged. And so it's somewhere between um, sort of the Aldous Huxley world of uh, elimination of mm -hmm. all suffering at great cost. Yes. And uh, where we live today with antidepressants mm -hmm. and various uh, chemicals that we, in many marginal cases, mm -hmm. can use just to feel a little better. Yes, but um, you know, in Brave New World, you know, for to take it back to Huxley, you know, the island where all the misfits go, where they're all sent, uh, seems to be the the best place. You know, they uh, you know they request. Oh, I can't remember the fellow's name. The one who's a writer. 
in Brave New World, but he says he wants to go somewhere with a bad climate, that he feels like he will be a better writer if he lives somewhere with a terrible climate, uh, because the harshness, the suffering will make him wise, will make him um, invigorated and able to produce great art, uh, whereas this kind of easy existence in a city with the Soma, where you never have to feel bad feelings, or you're never encouraged to feel anything other than pleasant, uh, is not conducive to his writing. And so I think you can see uh, elements of that in Huxley as well. I didn't include Brave New World in the book because the scholarship on that is extensive. And so <laughs> I didn't especially have anything new to say. <laughs> so the, the, um, some of the big lessons here that uh, we should, I guess, take away from uh, what you're writing and sort of the, the, the literature on this pop culture mm -hmm. is uh, how pervasive it is in these pop culture uh, stories to forget our own humanity, mm -hmm. to forget the humanity of others, mm -hmm. and use technology as sort of a salve against having to actually recognize it. Yes, that, um, we forget living in a democracy is a great privilege, and our rights come with corresponding duties. That classical liberalism only works if society really works at it, <laughs> that we have to remember uh, that we have natural rights as individuals. No one gives you natural rights, they're ours to claim as individual human beings. In a democracy, it's our duty to ensure that um, our use of technology, that our public policies don't infringe on the natural rights of our fellow human beings. Um, and of course, we extend that with uh, civil rights, with the idea of limiting government to certain spheres because that is the best way to preserve our individuality. That is the best way to you know, carve out an area where we're free to develop art and philosophy and literature and politics and love and all of the things that make human life worth living. Uh, we can only do this if we take personal responsibility for doing it for ourselves. And so we have to be very active in how we perceive technology, how we ourselves use technology, and uh, what direction our society goes in. That there's no way for you know, government to limit the use of technology or the development of technology. Uh, that's you know, one thing I get into in my book a little bit, that uh, in an international society, if a technology is possible, it will be developed. Uh, government policies forbidding the use or the development of human cloning will only last so long. Uh, someone somewhere will develop human clones. Someone somewhere will develop um, artificial intelligence that rivals human intelligence. And so really the only defense against sliding into some of these technological dystopias is to personally refuse to do so, <laughs> is to you know, take personal responsibility for the way you use technology, for the way that uh, those around you use it, to engage in public discussion of these things, to be uh, purposeful with how we allow technology to be incorporated into our daily lives. Kimberly Hurd-Hale is author of The Politics of Perfection, Technology, and Creation in Literature and Film. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.